Well, again, good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. I think it is amazing that week in and week out, uh, we all get the opportunity here uh, at weekend services to gather together, to worship Jesus together, to give him the honor that he is due, and to position ourselves underneath God's word because of what we believe about it, that sacred scripture is God speaking to us about who he is, about the life that he desires for us. But what a special weekend that we get an opportunity to see the transformation and the life change and the power of God that is at work in the here and now in our midst. Can we just give God glory one more time? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And since we are in a rather celebratory mood, I I thought I'd point out that uh, Grace Maris, who was our host this morning, that was her first time hosting a service. Didn't she do awesome? Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. And her dad just literally pumped his fist like this. So that's, thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. Yeah. So again, welcome to Medina East this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. And it is my honor and privilege uh, to be sharing with you this morning uh, as we continue in a series. This is week two of a shorter uh, three-week series that we are in here at the Medina East campus, a series that we're calling Trademark. And so uh, as we look to maybe unpack a little bit of what this is about, if you weren't here last week when we kicked off this series, uh, allow me just a second to uh, maybe clarify a bit of what we're doing and what this idea of the series trademark is. And so last week when we began this series, we actually heard from a guest speaker. uh, And this guest speaker is uh, someone who uh, was here at the Medina East Campus for many, many years with his family, but was recently called by God away to accept the position of senior pastor at Goss Memorial Church in Kenmore, Ohio, which is just an awesome awesome thing. Uh, It's Pastor Casey Hughes shared with us last week. And I thought what Pastor Casey did as he launched this series, he really provided what I would consider was just an exceptional uh, but succinct and helpful definition of what a trademark is as we look to establish some of the foundations for this series and what we're looking to accomplish or what our goals are, what we're aiming for as we have these conversations. And so I just figured what I do is straight up rip off Casey's definition of a trademark because it was so good, right? Just straight, yeah, you left. That's awesome. Okay, so here's what Tracy's, uh, Tracy, Casey said. A trademark is a symbol a word, a phrase, or a design, and this is important, that distinguishes, right? So it's something that you see, it's a reflection, it's a logo, it's this design or it's phrase, and it's differentiating something, an authentic article, from something else. And its design is that it distinguishes this product or service, the thing that you're after, from first, really helpful, imitation brands, knockoffs, pretenders, right? So how do you know you're dealing with the real deal kind of thing? Well, you can see it in the symbol, the word, the phrase, the design in its trademark, what's reflected. But also, it not only differentiates it, differentiates it from imitation brands, it also has the added benefit that this logo or this graphic or whatever you're seeing that's trademarked indicates that this thing that you're looking at is authentic. It's the real deal. It's legit. And that it originates from a particular source. Now, I think we all know in the course of our day-to-day lives how helpful the idea of logos or branding or trademarks can be, how important this is. And we see it every day, right? You go to the store, and if you're after a certain product or if you're after a certain service, like you go to the store, and one of the first things you know that there's going to be the genuine articles on the shelves, right? But because we live in the particular culture that we do, you also see a number of other things on the shelves. You see the imitators, right? The pretenders, the generic brands, right? The great values of the world. And so we do this all the time. When you go into a grocery store or a department store, a clothing store, or any other store for that matter, if you want the genuine article, if you're looking to clear the deck of all the other pretenders, you want the genuine article, what is the first thing that you're going to do? Well, right, you are going to look at the label. You're going to look at the brand. You're going to look at the trademark. So for example... If you and I were going to the grocery store, and if our pursuit was we wanted the authentic, genuine, liquid nectar that is enjoyed by all the heavenly hosts and the angels and the saints around God's throne and enjoyed by God himself, what is the first thing we're going to look for? We're going to look for this. That's right. I'm actually convinced of one thing. 
If you look in Exodus chapter 19 in the Bible, which is this spot where the people of Israel come to the foot of Mount Sinai and God himself descends in a cloud and thunder and lightning and peals of smoke, I'm convinced that Yahweh, God, actually gave Moses two things on that mountain. Number one, he gave him the Ten Commandments, the law, but he also gave him the 23 ingredients that comprise Dr. Pepper. I'm convinced of this because this drink is heavenly, is it not? Right? How many of you guys are with me? Dr. Pepper, right? Like last service, I had somebody shout an amen over Dr. Pepper. I don't think I've ever had that on anything else that I've said before in my life, right? So now listen, we, we all know the Dr. Pepper scores. We all know we want to go to the store. And, but we've also had those moments in our lives where maybe if we're over a friend's house for dinner on a Friday night and they ask us what we want to drink and we say, well, what do you have? And they say, Coke, Pepsi, Root Beer, Dr. Pepper, stop right there, right? I'll take the Dr. Pepper. They go into the kitchen. They come back out with a glass that looks like Dr. Pepper. But when you put that glass <clears throat> up to your lips, your taste buds are not met with Dr. Pepper, but they are met with this. As Pastor Steve says frequently, we've all been there, right? Well, you, like, it's a knockoff, right? And don't get me wrong, Dr. Thunder, this is, I'm not disparaging Dr. Thunder in the least. Me and Dr. Thunder have a really quality relationship that goes way back. Me and the doc love each other, right? So I was born in 1980. I kind of grew up or came of age in the 90s. And I just remember I would go over to my friend's house almost like every Friday night and we would go to the grocery store and get all kinds of food that wasn't good for us. And when we were looking for soda, we're like, there's Dr. Pepper. But then we looked at the price tag and I realized that my summer job was working at SeaWorld making slushies. And so I'm looking at the price tag and I'm evaluating Dr. Pepper, Dr. Thunder. My pocketbook says Dr. Thunder. So we're good. Me and Dr. Thunder are good. But here's, here's what's interesting. I, I, I found this fascinating. As I was doing some study and prep and research for this sermon, um, I actually discovered that there are over 250 imitation knockoff brands of Dr. Pepper that are floating out there in our world today. And quite possibly, the thing that is more astonishing than that is that some dude on the internet decided to do all this research and present it to us, <laughs> to me on a webpage. But check this out, just, just a couple of like knockoffs, imitation Dr. Pepper. These cracked me up. These were hilarious. Not only do we have Dr. Thunder out there as an imitation brand, we also have, look at this, Mr. Sip. Really? Look, I know you got the double P, so you're thinking Dr. Pepper, Pepper has that double P in the middle of there, but like, this guy's not even a doctor. He's just some dude, right? And so listen, if I want a surgical procedure done on my taste buds with this drink, I ain't calling Mr. Sip. This guy's not even credentialed, right? So check this out. This was quite possibly my favorite, and then we'll be done with the Dr. Pepper gimmick, okay? There is a knockoff brand of Dr. Pepper that is literally called, I'm so excited for this, Dr. Whatever. <laughs> this is legit. This is Dr. Whatever. And I'm like, can you imagine, could you just close your eyes and imagine like being a fly on the wall at the marketing pitch meeting for, at this company? The guys are like, well, yeah, we just want to make some money off the fact that we're a knockoff brand of Dr. Pepper, but we really don't know what to call it. And the guy's like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. There it is. Yeah, let's just call it Dr. Whatever. Now, listen, honestly, all kidding aside, I think we know that the idea of trademarks, logos, and branding is such a massive conversation. Because in this series, we're not interested in knockoff brands of Dr. Pepper. What we're interested in is pursuing this. What are the marks? What are the external reflective marks of a true, legit, genuine article, authentic follower of Jesus, a true Christian? What is it that brands or marks a Christian? And I think this is a massive conversation, both for those of us in this room that might be investigating Jesus. But I think it's also really important for those of us who might follow Jesus, who I think in many respects are still investigating the implications of the life that we have claimed that we have in Jesus. And so we're asking in this series from scripture, from God's word, what is a genuine, abiding, true relationship with God because of what Jesus has done, what does that look like? Because if we can detect those things, every one of us is gonna be better equipped to consider not only the genuine article, even as it pertains to our own lives and stories, 
But not only the genuine articles, but we will be able to increasingly spot the pretenders, to spot the fakes that, as so many of us know, in our experience and in our history, can often leave us feeling duped, feeling hurt, feeling confused, because so many of us have seen people who do things in the name of Jesus that just leave us jaded and empty-handed. And so last week, as we launched this series, Pastor Casey walked us through one of these genuine articles, these Christian virtues, this idea of faith, that followers of Jesus, you will know a genuine follower of Jesus from all the pretenders because they have a radical deep faith, a commitment and a trust to the provision of God in their lives, no matter what the cost. And so today, as we continue in the series, we are going to look at another trademark or another mark of an abiding follower of Jesus, and that is the mark of love, that Christ's followers are to be known in the world by their love. And so if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, we are going to go to a hallmark passage and take a look at this that has everything to do with this notion of being a trademarked follower of Jesus that expresses genuine love in their lives. I want to invite you to turn, if you brought your Bible, to John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, that is okay. You could follow along on the screen, or you, there's gonna be some Bibles under the seats in front of you. It'll be on page 875 in those Bibles. And lastly, I'll just say this. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have one of your own, we want you to take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you, and that is yours. I want you to take it home with you. Just consider that maybe our way of saying thank you for being here today. And also, we just have a commitment that we want to get God's word into your hands because of what we believe about it. And so uh, as you're making your way to John 13, just allow me a second, since we're in the 31st verse, starting the 31st verse, just allow me a second to maybe set up a little bit of helpful context for us as we enter into this passage. So here's what you really need to know. At the beginning of John 13, at the beginning of John 13, there is a noticeable and detectable shift in Jesus's ministry as it's recounted for us in the Gospel of John. Uh, most scholars and theologians note that the first 12 chapters of John, in the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus's focus and his emphasis and attention is on ministry to the crowds. He does many miracles and he teaches the crowds. But roundabout, again, the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus's attention narrows and it focuses primarily on his 12 disciples, those who are sharing a Passover-esque or a Passover-like meal with him on the eve of his crucifixion. And rather than beginning with teaching them something in John chapter 13, we actually discover that Jesus doesn't start by teaching them anything. He starts by doing something for his disciples. And it is known as the foot washing. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, you gotta know that if you were a person living in the first century, that washing another person's feet would have been the most menial, dishonorable, and humiliating act that would have been known in a culture in that day. This was an act that was reserved for servants or those who were of inferior social status or low regard in the culture and in the eyes of others. And so after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the disciples begin to be maybe a little bit confused and perplexed. And so as Jesus looks to start unpacking a little bit what he's done, this unconventional action, look at what he says right before our passage in uh, John 13, 31 through 35. Jesus begins to explain a little bit and challenge his disciples. John tells us that when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his, back on his outer garment that he had taken off to wash them. He put on his clothes and he returned to his place at the dinner table. And then Jesus asked them a very important question. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? He says, you disciples, you call me Lord or teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And then he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. He says, I've set you an example that you might imitate, right? That you should do exactly as I have done for you. Now, I think we could see right off the bat here, as Jesus says these words, there is what I would call an interesting paradox that Jesus presents to his disciples here, and I think to us as well as we're reading this almost 2,000 years later. 
Because notice with me for a second that Jesus doesn't for a second shrink away from the high and respected position of authority that he has over his disciples and his influence in the, li- in the lives of his disciples. What does he say? You guys call me Lord and, or teacher and Lord. And he says, and rightly so, spot on, right? That's exactly who I am. And so in one sense, we see here that Jesus clearly knows that he's in charge, that he is exercising authority and power, and he's ex- he has the right to exercise these things over his disciples. And yet, what does he also say? That I, your Lord and teacher, he washed their feet, and you should wash one another's feet. It's almost as if Jesus is acting as though it's the disciples who are in charge, and that he sees himself and his life as existing to come underneath them and support, to support them and to see them flourish. It's like Jesus is operating out of an understanding that he exists to serve them. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if I'm reading this passage and I think we're supposed to be struck this way, these two things seem so irreconcilable to me, so irreconcilable. Do you see that? And honestly, sometimes if if I'm just being perfectly honest, this leaves me asking, it leaves me a little confused And it honestly leaves me asking a a, a really important question. Like, Jesus, what, what gives here? What gives here? Like, Jesus, if I'm supposed to follow you, which one is it? If I'm supposed to exhibit these kinds of trademarks, which one is it? Am I supposed to follow you into the heights of victory and privilege and exaltation and greatness, as I would define it? Or does following your trademark, does following you involve me dropping to the depths of what I can only say or describe looks like debased humiliation? Jesus, which one is it? And as Jesus looks to continue to explain this to his disciples and to us, now we find ourselves in John 13, 31. John tells us that when Judas, one of the disciples who will leave to betray Jesus, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, which is a reference to Jewish religious leaders who opposed Jesus, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, and the foot washing is an example, so you must love one another. And it's by this kind of love that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, obviously, there's so, there are so many things that we can unearth and unpack from this passage. This is potentially one of the most densely packed in passages that you will find in all of scripture. So while we don't have time to mine it for everything that it could tell us, here's what I wanna do as we start our study and exploration of what Jesus would have to say here. I just wanna start in the first two verses. Let's focus on the first two verses for a second. So after Judas leaves, John tells us that Jesus says, Now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. Anybody catch that Jesus is really trying to maybe potentially emphasize something or stress something that he seems to be super concerned about? Like, is there anything in this passage, let me ask you, anything in this passage that you think like Jesus is super concerned or preoccupied with? Like anything that Jesus might repeat over and over, like ad nauseum. Anything, anybody, anybody, what do you think? Glorify, right? I mean, check this out, right? Two verses, or two sentences rather, one and a half verses, the word glorify or a variation of it appears five times. The Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. God is glorified. God will glorify the Son and will glorify him at once. And so it appears that again, Jesus, if we're just reading this, is really preoccupied with this notion of glory. 
first the Father's glory that's gonna be exercised in him and what he's doing, and then the Father's glorification of him. And so I think it's incumbent upon us, it requires us a little bit to better understand what Jesus might have met when he used these words and when he's importing these concepts as he does over and over and over again here. Now here's what you need to know. The word glory in the original language, the original language is Greek behind this passage, the word in Greek that Jesus uses for glory or glorify is the Greek word doxa, doxa. And so actually we find this word embedded in the word doxology, if you've ever heard of that. So a doxology is a word or a statement of praise about someone's honorable reputation. And so uh, what you need to know though, is that actually if you were a Jewish person in the first century, the term doxa, this Greek word that Jesus uses here, was one that scribes, Jewish scribes used to translate a very, very important Hebrew word that appears over and over again in the Old Testament that scholars almost unanimously say lies behind or informs Jesus's usage of this word in this passage. And so what I wanna do is I wanna introduce you because I am a nerd, okay? So if you just humor me for a second, I wanna introduce you to this Hebrew word. It is the Hebrew word kabod, kabod. And you know you wanna say it, ready? Kabod, kabod, right? And so literally, if you were gonna look up this word, at its core, at its base, it simply means this, ready? Heavy, heavy. Like what Marty McFly would say to Doc in the Back to the Future series, that's heavy, Doc, that's kabod, Doc. It, It means heavy or it means weighty. Or it could also mean something that is substantial, substantial. Now listen, I so badly want to spend hours unpacking this term and looking at every instance of where it appears in the Old Testament because it's awesome. But to spare you excruciating boredom, right? What I'm gonna do is I'm going to just show the summary of this word that's given to us by the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Guys, this is awesome. The Lexham Bible Dictionary says, it summarizes kabod, it says in a secular sense, meaning the way this word would have been used in the average run-of-the-mill, everyday culture in antiquity, in a secular sense, this word, this Hebrew word for glory, primarily means, as we've already said, weight, and it refers to something substantial. And in this sense, I want you to notice this, the term connotes honor and fame, so it has to do with a reputation that someone holds or has, honor and fame, but coming from somewhere, coming from a social status that includes things like greatness or wealth or their power or the way that other people acknowledge those things publicly and the acknowledgement of others. Now, this is to say, I think it's really important that glory is not something that is ultimately abstract or unseen. Glory has to do with the great reputation and the character that a person possesses. But it is not ultimately the unseen characteristics of what makes that person who they are. Glory is not abstract or unseen. Glory is the unseen, who a person is, made public. Did you catch that? Glory is the unseen, who a person is, made visible. It is their greatness of who they are that you can't see observed to the world around. And so this means that like a person's wealth or their level of power or their influence or that which is verbalized about a person's character, these things are visible manifestations of the invisible qualities of the subject or the person that you are talking about and that you are revering. And so this means that glory language in the Bible is primarily concerned with how a person's true inner character, who they really are and what they are really like, what you can't see is made visible and public is demonstrated and manifested to the world around. Now, I think one of the greatest examples of these conceptions of glory that we get in scripture that I think lies behind what Jesus is saying when he says the father will glorify him and he will be glorified by the father. I think one of the greatest examples in our modern context uh, comes from the absolutely revered and seminal work of cinema that we all know as Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre. All right, how many of you have seen Nacho, Nacho Libre? Yeah, okay, you are the true people of God. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, it's, dude, Nacho Libre 
If you have not seen Nacho Libre, you have to leave, not now, after service is over, you have to watch this movie. Uh, We say this at Grace Church, we say that if you're not in a life group, you should get in a life group, because if you're not in a life group, you are only getting half of what we have to offer you as a church. I'm going to change that. If you have not seen this movie, you're only getting half of what we have to offer as a church. No, (laughs) of course, course, I'm kidding about that. But Nacho Libre, oh man, it is such a great movie. In fact, it's the best. (laughs) It's, It's fantastic. Yeah, send me a piece of that corn, huh? Send me a piece of that corn for later. You guys got to watch it if you haven't seen it. I'm just saying. So let me just give you a synopsis of the movie to catch us all up to speed, right? So Nacho Libre is the story of Nacho, played by Jack Black. I just can't, right? I mean, look at that guy. It's played by Jack Black. It's this guy named Nacho. And Nacho is uh, actually a servant in an orphanage in Mexico. And he grew up in this orphanage in Mexico. And throughout the movie, you discover very quickly uh, that Nacho believes that it is his life's calling, that God himself has called Nacho to be a luchador. I want to race, because it is the best to race. And so Nacho believes that like his inward character, that greatness is inside of him and that it needs to come out in the form of wrestling. But he has a problem and that the monks and the nuns that are in the orphanage literally say that it is in the Bible that it is a sin to wrestle. It is in the Bible that it is a sin to wrestle. So not just like, I've got this thing inside of me. Part of my identity and who I am is wrapped up in this. And he has this one moment of its excruciating angst and he lets out to his friends and he says, don't you want a little taste of the glory? See what it tastes like. And so eventually, Nacho knows that he has greatness inside of him, but he knows he cannot contain that greatness. He cannot keep it inside. And so Nacho must manifest this greatness publicly. And he does so by entering into the Lucha Libre Championship, a major event that is going to show the world just who Nacho is. It will culminate in Nacho's glory. And so what, and all this is achieved, when Nacho wins the tournament, he can just shout a deep and utterly satisfactory, yes, it's fantastic. Now, there is literally no way I can make a transition back to John 13, so we're gonna hard stop there. But you get the point, right? As we do, make our way back to John 13. Here's what I want us to see. When Jesus says that he is going to glorify the Father, what he is saying, you can't miss this. There is something so central and pivotal about who the Father is, what he's really like, something so central to the core of who God is and what he's truly like, his power, his majesty, his greatness, his authority, everything that makes God, God, that there is something so central to his character that Jesus is about to make public in his life, in an act, in an event. And likewise, when Jesus says that the Father will glorify him, what he's saying is that there's something so central to his heart his desires, his will, that the Father is going to publicly manifest as the Father works out his plan of salvation in Jesus in a key event that will display that glory abundantly, clearly. And so this means that when we hit this passage, there's really only one question left to answer. What act, what act will definitively reveal who the Father really is in Jesus' life? What event, what public display is going to most clearly demonstrate God's heart, who he really is, to save us and rescue us, not only from ourselves, but from all the pretenders and perversions about who God really is? What act is going to publicly display who the Father really is 
and what he's really like. I want to draw your attention to two small adverbs that we might otherwise overlook in these first two verses, probably because we've all forgotten what an adverb is and how it functions in a sentence. But two small adverbs that I think are so, we might overlook them, it's so subtle, but it's so powerful and profound and beautiful what Jesus is doing here. It's these words now and at once. Now and at once. The Father will be glorified now and he will glorify the Son at once. These words can also be translated immediately or what will follow right on the heels of these words that are spoken. Because let me ask you, what is right around the corner for Jesus after he speaks with his disciples from John 13 to John 17, what event or what act is right around the corner for Jesus? Yeah. It's the cross. It's the cross. Guys, what is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God, who God really is and what he's really like. Behold the man on the cross. Behold the son of God who gives up his life so that those God loves can can experience life. Guys, I think this is to say that what Jesus is driving at in John 13 is that in God's kingdom, in his mindset, in his character, guys, any pursuit of glory and honor and privilege and exaltation, any pursuit of grace, of greatness in God's kingdom is woefully deficient without sacrifice, without sacrifice. Guys, do you see this? The cross vividly demonstrates that glory and humility are inseparable. You want to know what God is really like? Behold the man on the cross. That a willingness to lay one's life down so that another person can find the life that God desperately wants to give them is the clearest presentation, the picture-perfect portrait of God's greatness and his character his glory. This is who God is. And in the Bible, over and over again, it is the word love that is used to depict the willingness for a person to lay down their lives so that another could benefit, so that another could flourish. And this means that biblical love is not to be reduced to cheap sentimentality, It's not ultimately about feelings or emotions or romance. That ultimately biblical love is decisive. It is committed. It is active. And ultimately biblical love is cross-shaped. That the glory of God is most vividly manifest, put on display in this great and faithful love that God will manifest to the world when God himself would die for those he loves. I just love what one New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, love the way he puts this. When he's talking about the gospel of John, he says, even in the prologue, meaning even at the introduction, the outset of John's gospel, the glorification, the manifestation of who God truly is, of the incarnate word, Jesus himself, this occurs not in a spectacular display of blinding light, but in the matrix of human existence, in the dirt, in the dust, in our pain, in our hurt. And now in chapter 13, bringing to a climax a theme that has been developed throughout the entire gospel, John, the evangelist, makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was precisely in the shame of the cross. Shame of the cross. 
And guys, doesn't this blow you away? It is to this love and this kind of glory that then later in John 13, 31 through 35, the last two verses, Jesus is going to freely invite his followers into. If we got the word glory five times in the first couple verses, we get the word love and the command to love one another four times in the last two. A new command I give you. Love one another. Be willing to lay your lives down for each other so that people can see who God really is and what his heart is. As I have loved you, the invitation, so you must. You must love one another. And it's by this that everyone will know you're the trademark, that you are my disciples if you love one another. Guys, how will we know? How will the world know that we are the real deal, legit, authentic follower of Jesus? It's by our willingness to grow and increase in love for one another. It is the trademark of authentic Christ followers. That when Jesus' people love in the same way, just as he loved us, through cross-shaped acts like foot washing or laying our lives down to serve one another in our need and in our pain, then it is nothing short. You have to see this. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you do that, it is nothing short of the God of the universe being manifested to the world around you, to the world around you. And if we were still unclear from what Jesus says in this passage, we can read what John wrote to a group of Christ followers in a letter later in his life. He says to them, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and they just don't know about God. They know him in relationship, in deepening intimacy. They know God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God, his most fundamental attribute by which all the others should be understood is what? Say it, love. This is how God showed his love among us. How did God display it? Well, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us. And how did he do that? He sent his son to die for our sin as an atoning sacrifice for our sin that we might have life. Dear friends, this affectionate language. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. You can't see God tangibly. However, if we're loving one another, God be, God's glory is on display. God lives in us and his love is made complete. It's brought to its rightful goal in the Father's plan precisely through followers of Jesus. Because I gotta tell you, I don't know about you, but this is powerful, powerful stuff that Jesus and John invite us into. Listen, I know too that there are many in this room, if you're like me, that simultaneously how powerful this is, we could see the depth and the vision of God's love for us in the Son and the command and the invitation to love like that. While we see the glory in that, I think we can also experience a little potentially a little discouragement in that sometimes as well, can't we? Because I don't know about you, whether you're a Christ follower, even if you're not, that vision of love seems so impossible for me. It seems so impossible. Because would you agree? It's so hard to love like that, isn't it? It's so hard for me to lay myself down for the benefit of another person. Like, how can I do that? I don't do that. And so I question myself, well, what should I do in light of that? Should I just try harder? Should I just grit it a little bit more? Should I close my eyes hard, flare my nostrils, clench my teeth, and just do better? And sometimes I just don't even want to try because it's so discouraging. Like, it's impossible to do this. Or sometimes 
I'm just too afraid of screwing it up that I don't even invest my energy and my effort on Jesus's behalf at all. And this was made readily apparent to me this week as I was prepping for this message. I was literally sitting in the middle of Medina Panera and I was reading John 13, 31 through 35 and just like what washed over me was just the beauty and the intensity of the father's love for me through the son. And literally, guys, I was, I started weeping in the middle of a Panera. Like everybody else around me is like, uh-oh, 42-year-old man weeping alert. Like don't, you know, like, hey, little buddy, it's gonna be okay. I don't know what to do with this guy. Like, like sitting there weeping in the middle of a Panera because guys, right, we're seeing it right now. Jesus' love is so beautiful and it's so good and we know it to be true. And yet, immediately thereafter, when I shut the lid of the laptop, I put the thing in my bag and I came here. Guys, I was about as grumpy and angry and frustrated with people in my life that I really do care about as I have been in a long time. And I realized... Man, I was so gripped by a presentation of love, but I had not allowed that love to work itself out in me to transform me in that moment. I was agreeing with love, but I wasn't being a person of love. So if that's you, let me give you some encouragement. Go to Panera, sit down, and win. I I think I learned something. I think the Lord taught me something in the last week is that while I can't muster up enough energy and effort within my own self, I can't muster up enough strength to love like that. It's impossible. I think that if I'm willing, I can do a couple things. I can remember that I am invited to embrace, embrace, that I am equipped, and that Jesus invites me to evaluate. Embrace, equip, evaluate. Number one, embrace is that the same love that I see vividly demonstrated on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates the glory and the love of God. It reveals to us who God really is and what he's really like. But it simultaneously forgives us of our sin. Of those moments in time where we fall woefully short of the standard that God has set for us, that that God wants for us. So the same cross that reveals the glory of God is also the place I can go when that love has not truly transformed me to where it's working itself out in a trademark, I can run to the cross because it's there the blood of Jesus has covered every sin and every act of rebellion. I can embrace the forgiveness of Jesus when I confess and I can be righted and then compelled to put himself back in front of me, to be equipped to see Jesus for who he truly is in his glory and again, and to be motivated by my effort and the Spirit's work in my life, working in tandem. I don't know how that works, but that's a biblical thing. We're working together that Jesus is transforming me increasingly into a person of love. And then finally, I am invited as a follower of Jesus to, in relationship, evaluate the effectiveness and the appearance of the trademark in a relational way. I can go to a Jesus who understands me, who can relate with me, and I can invite him to lovingly challenge me and grow me to love like he does. I can ask him questions. Jesus, is my love growing? Help me evaluate this in my life. Jesus, am I seeing evidence of your kind of love appearing in my relationships? Is my love bearing, is your love within me bearing fruit? Not perfectly, not perfectly, but increasingly, progressively, as I grow deeper in a relationship with Jesus. I can ask him the question, Jesus, is my life increasingly making the greatness of God's character tangible and visible to others? And if I fall short again, I run the cross. I run to the cross to receive forgiveness, to realize I'm equipped, and to return to evaluating my life in relationship with Jesus. And so, if Jesus offers us the opportunity to evaluate our lives with him in concert in that relationship, what are some ways that Jesus hands over to us? What are some tools that we can use 
I just want to give you two, and then we're done. I would say this. So we're looking to evaluate the level and the intensity and the depth of our love to love like Jesus did. We should be reminded that Jesus gives his followers his spirit, his spirit. So John 13 starts a discourse or a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples that runs all the way through John 17. And it's no surprise then that in John 14 and John 16, Jesus begins to articulate to his disciples that when he goes away, when he ascends, that he will send his spirit and that it's better for him to go away because then he can send the spirit as the ascended Lord of the world. And it is the spirit, Jesus says, that is given to followers of Jesus to remember, to remember everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus taught, to remind us of the love of Jesus at the cross so we can be gripped afresh by a vision of that love that we need. The Spirit is given to empower and enable followers of Jesus to do that which we could not do without the power of Jesus. The Spirit enables us to love. And the Spirit enables us to, in concert with Jesus, to be challenged and convicted and to grow. The Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22 that the Spirit is given to followers of Jesus to bear fruit to manifest visible fruit of love in their lives. And the first quality that Paul says the spirit is given to bear in the life of a follower of Jesus is love. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So my encouragement to us is, as we look to evaluate where we're at in our relationship with Jesus and how we're loving, my encouragement to you is that we can interact with God's spirit to bring to remembrance everything that Jesus said, to put him back in our focus and follow him in that. And then secondly, I would say this, that Jesus gives not only his followers a spirit, but he gives his followers his symbols. One of these symbols we had the privilege of witnessing earlier, that baptism is this symbol of dying with Jesus and rising again to the new life that he procured for us in his resurrection. Something that we will celebrate this coming weekend or next weekend. But Jesus also gives us other symbols, what we would call communion. And here at Grace Church, we see that there are these kind of subcomponents of communion that we practice, right, as a community of people. The bread and the cup, being reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us on the cross, for our sin. Being reminded that his blood was shed so that we could have the life of God. And we practice things called an agape meal or what's called a love feast. It is a meal where followers of Jesus get together to dine and bask in the reality that we are God's children who are loved together. And we also partake in foot washing. We wash each other's feet, just like Jesus did in John 13, and where he commanded his disciples that you should do just as I have done. I've left you an example that you should wash one another's feet. What are these things? The things that we are gonna be doing in our Good Friday service uh, services, again, we have at five at seven this coming Friday. What we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be gathering to worship Jesus together, to proclaim his greatness about what he's done for us in light of his death. But we are also going to be partaking of Jesus's symbols. Let me just tell you, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of the symbols of Jesus, there is a dynamic reality and a realization. We are reminded not only of just what Jesus said, but we are reenacting in our relationships together and in these practices, we are reenacting Jesus' own self-sacrifice in our midst. We are bringing to remembrance not only what Jesus said, but what Jesus did for us to be gripped in a sensory way and reminded of Jesus's great love. So my encouragement to all of us is, if we can, this Friday, to come to one of those services and experience, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, to come and experience what's going on there. The bottom line is this, is that the glory of God, all that God is, what he's really, who he truly is and what he's really like, was made manifest completely in the act of sacrificial love when Jesus gave himself up for us. And Jesus invites us by his spirit and with his symbols 
to be transformed in relationship so that we can, in our own acts of service and love for each other and also for the world around us, let everyone know who God truly is. Let's pray together. Father, we want to come to you right now and we want to, first of all, express our gratitude and our thanksgiving for who you are and the fact that your character is. You said it in John, 1 John 4, that your most fundamental quality, the way that we should come to understand you and know you, your most fundamental attribute is love. Your willingness to pour out your life and the, your creation life pour that out for us. Father, you are so generous and you are so good. We are so privileged that even though we, according to Isaiah, like sheep have gone astray, we've rebelled against you in our sin, that you still pursued us out of love and you gave up that which was most precious to you, your son, so that we could come into relationship with you and have the life that you want for us. So Father, we praise you for that. Jesus, we honor you and glorify you, not just in word and talk, but in deed and truth, offering you, handing our lives over to you by faith. Whether we're doing that for the first time here in this moment, your spirit is leading, or whether we are re-upping our commitment to hand everything that we have over to you and ask that you would transform us into being a people who are like you, a people who love Jesus, we are saying thank you to you as well for dying for us, for setting the tone, for setting the pace, for setting the example, for equipping us and for steering us into loving each other and loving the world that you care a lot about. So spirit, as we sing, as we uh, worship you, Jesus, we're just asking that you would stir in our hearts afresh the gripping reality of the cross and that it would lead to something, that it would lead to our transformation and it would lead to further acts of this trademark you've given to us, this trademark of love. We're just asking that you do that work. And we pray in your name. Amen.